0: Welcome back to The Perfect Scam. For the past two weeks, we've been bringing you the story of Dr. Fareed Fada. His thriving oncology practice in Michigan holds a dark secret. He's been giving patients expensive chemotherapy treatments they don't need, sometimes even perfectly healthy patients, just to collect big Medicare checks. The story is so important, we've dug it out from the archives. Where we left off, A young doctor, a new hire, suspects something is wrong, very wrong, but doesn't know how to stop the crime. And he turns to office manager, George Karachi for help. Karachi is about to go to the FBI. Will they believe him? And now the conclusion of our three-part series, Dr. Rotten. Will Johnson is your
1: host. Welcome back to AARP, The Perfect Scam. And the third part of our three-part series on Dr. Freed Fada. We are joined this week once again by a champion in the world of bringing down Medicare and uh, healthcare fraudsters, Peggy Sposato, thanks for joining us once again.
2: Thank you. My pleasure.
1: Peggy, for many years, was with the Department of Justice and a member of the Medicare Fraud Strike Force, which sounds like serious business. And indeed it was, right, Peggy?
2: Yes, it was. (laughs) Very serious.
1: (laughs) You were actually a a nurse before you you got into the world of uh, taking down uh, bad guys.
2: Right, I did a pretty long career as a registered nurse in the hospital, and then I took my nurse practitioner and went on with that for a while. So I keep marching through careers.
1: Now, I wanted to ask you before we get into the, this final chapter of our story about Doctor Friedfadt. Why is it relatively easy for healthcare professionals to submit bogus claims to Medicare? It seems like that should be something that that shouldn't be happening, right?
2: Well, it seems I, I said there's a little story that I heard early early on when I started doing this job, and it said. I'll repeat it as I wrote it. Medicare is a federal health care program funded by the Medicare Trust Fund, operative word, trust. This is supported by your payroll taxes, general tax revenues, and premiums. It has been quoted, and this was quoted by CMS, that the reason that it's so easy to submit claims is that the program was based on trust. Right. Every day, 5 million claims are submitted to Medicare. If the provider information, the patient Medicare number, the beneficiary data, the date, the codes are on the claim form, it goes through. There is The analysis starts immediately once it goes through. In essence, it's easy to submit because there's no mechanism in place to stop the claim from going through into the system.
1: Peggy, how can someone tell if or, or detect if Medicare fraud is being done in their name and is there anything you can do about it?
2: It's, it's pretty difficult, but uh, one of the things that I've, said and done is be aware. Keep a notebook of who you saw, when you saw them, what was done, and where, and what kind of services or equipment did you receive. Keep that information in a notebook. And then when your explanation of benefits, your EOB, or your Medicare summary notice comes in, you take that and you compare it to what you wrote in your book. Okay? If the date's right, the doctor's right, the service is right, you're home free. Yeah. But I think it's just a safety measure to kind of keep your, you know, keep an eye on it to make sure. And if you have a problem, report it to Medicare. One eight hundred Medicare. I think that's about the only thing you can do.
1: It's un, it's really important for our listeners to understand and also beware that the landscape of Medicare fraud is is massive and uh, treacherous. And this is uh, one story that is certainly shocking and awful. But uh, it's important to understand the, the 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 bigger landscape. Yeah,
2: it's impartial. Medicare fraud hits everything.
1: All right, Peggy Spasato. Let's uh, without further ado, let's get into the third and final chapter of the story of Dr. Fareed Fada, and, and we'll come back to you in, in just a bit to uh, wrap up our story. Okay. Welcome back to the final episode of our three-part story about Dr. Fareed Fada, the successful Michigan oncologist who is suspected by staff of giving chemotherapy and medication to patients who either don't need it or who don't even have cancer. For all the extra and unneeded treatments, Fada is milking the insurance companies for the money and making millions. As we learned last time, Fada's office manager, George Karache, had enough evidence to make a case against Fada. He knows he has to do more than confront him. He decides to take his case to the FBI, where it lands on the desk of Agent Brian Drake. It's August 2013, and after five and a half years of working national security matters, it's Drake's first week working on the healthcare care front team.
3: Thursday, which would have been uh, August 1st, I got an email from my supervisor saying that there was somebody who wanted to come in with some information uh, to the U.S. attorney's office, a key tam relator, which in layman's terms is a whistleblower. Mm -hmm. Um, to come into the U.S. Attorney's Office and provide us information that there was an oncologist in the area that was diagnosing people with cancer who did not have it and giving them uh, chemotherapy when they did not need it, along with other um, treatments that they did not need. And I read that email, and it definitely alarmed me, and I went to my my partner who was sitting next to me. who ended up being my partner in the case uh, on the FBI side. And I said to him, I'm like, does this sound right to you? Um, and he's like, oh, well, we, we get these emails quite, quite often, and we have to go and, and sit with these folks who are key tam relators or whistleblowers. And right. uh, usually 10 to 15% of what they say is accurate uh, upon the, uh, doing an investigation. Um, so it's like, I, I can't imagine that this is real. This sounds just so over the
1: top. On Friday morning at 10 a.m., they all go into a meeting, 12 people, attorneys from the U.S. Attorney's Office, agents, the whistleblower and his attorney, they spend two or three hours with George Karache. And as he
3: began to speak, you know, for the first half hour, I mean, our jaws were on the floor like, what? This, this can't be true.
1: Sarah Resnick-Cohen is now Assistant United States Attorney in the Public Corruption Unit in Michigan. But at the time, she was Deputy Chief of the Healthcare Fraud Unit.
4: During the meeting, an employee of FADA's office disclosed to prosecutors and agents in the room um, information suggesting that Fada was not only committing health care fraud, but he was potentially endangering the health and lives of a number of patients. Uh, the allegations were very serious, very disturbing.
1: For the next two or three hours, George Karanche continues to answer questions and provide evidence for those in the room.
3: He was able to provide us with either documentation or personal knowledge or direct us to people who would have that personal knowledge and say, go interview this person, go talk to them, they'll tell you exactly the same thing. They either, they're the ones who told me and saw this.
1: Karachi had been talking to nurses and doctors and others, but Dr. Mongley's report is what convinced him. Drake asked his partners if this was at all normal.
3: My partner said to me, he's "Like, we walked out and he goes, Brian, your life as you know it is over. This is going to change your life for the next couple of years, um, and it did.
1: That turned out to be true. 100%. Barbara McQuade with the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Eastern District of Michigan immediately heard from a member of her team who was at the meeting.
5: I got a call from one of our lawyers on a Friday afternoon who said that someone had come in and reported that there was a doctor who was administering chemotherapy treatments to patients who did not have cancer and lying to them about their diagnosis. He and I both thought that it was too far-fetched to be true but we also took it seriously enough to believe that if it were true, we needed to act very quickly.
3: Uh, His next patient wasn't uh, until Tuesday uh, morning, the August 6th, that I think 7.30 in the morning, he was gonna do a bone marrow biopsy at a hospital on a patient. And so we knew that that was our deadline. We had to have their case pretty much, I wanna say proved, but we had to get probable cause before then to stop him.
1: So you had Uh, Friday afternoon, the weekend, and Monday? Yes. Investigators had their work cut out for them. They were literally racing against time.
3: The oncologist that was uh, working with for us that first weekend was able to identify the practices that Fado was doing. He's like, there's no justification for this in any way, shape, or form. He's um, like, I don't know how he's getting away with this. Uh, this guy is, is definitely wrong in the way he's practicing medicine.
1: But they needed more than the whistleblower and the expert. They interviewed all of the employees identified in the whistleblower's report.
3: We went and sim- did simultaneous um, interviews of all those employees because the whistleblower had told us because we had asked, I had asked in the interview, do these workers inside Dr. Spada's office, are they friendly with each other? Are they friends inside work? Are they friends outside work? Do they email each other? Do they text message each other? And he said, yeah, they're all pretty gossipy. Yeah. I'm like, okay, well then we can't go talk to one because in a normal case you, you do one interview at a time usually. Uh, in this case, we couldn't do that because as soon as one person was approached, there was going to be a phone call to the next person.
1: Did you know much about his background or, you know, where he was from or, you know, anything that might sort of paint a picture of who he was or why he did what he did? We might probably never understand that.
3: No, there was nothing glaring in his background at all that uh, went to him doing this. We had no evidence of, you know, childhood trauma or him being slighted by somebody or a company or another doctor or anything like that to, to where he would do this. Um, there was nothing at all that, that was like a, a breaking point for him right. um, that I saw. I mean, he was born and raised in Lebanon. He was educated there, was a doctor in Lebanon and came to the United States. And he went to a prestigious cancer institute to, to do his fellowship, Memorial Sloan Kettering, um, which is, is a very reputable place.
1: Interviewers, agents, and attorneys compared notes, and a complaint was written up late Monday night. An operational plan was going into effect as well regarding how they'd apprehend FADA. Early Tuesday morning around 4.30, they wake up a judge to get a warrant.
3: Uh, I'd always heard veterans talk about waking up a judge
1: in the middle of the night in his
3: pajamas. I never thought it would happen in my career, but it did in this case. Um, Literally, we were in the magistrate's home in his family room, uh, and he was signing the warrants in his pajamas, Wow, which was something I'm like wow this
1: something you read about or a movie yes
3: you don't you don't experience it <laughs>
1: with the warrant in hand agents race to catch Fauna before he leaves for work
3: so we finally get there and they're calling him out we're like a mile and a half away they're calling him out uh, from his house uh, and saying yeah he's getting into his car he's, he's backing out of his driveway I'm like oh man we're not gonna make this uh, and so he starts to drive out he runs the stop sign at his entrance they pull him over. As they pull him over, I'm jumping out of the car. We raced into the parking lot. I was able to. I'm still throwing my vest on as I'm running in my suit from the night day before. And I finally get it all zipped up and Velcroed on, and then I'm able to put the cuffs on him. Because uh, the, the agent that helped pull him out of the car said, who's the case agent? And I raised my hand. I'm like, it's me. Pulls him over, and I was able to put the cuffs on him and walk him away.
1: Drake tells Fada he's under arrest and takes him to his car.
3: He, like a lot of people, when you arrest them, they'll, they're nervous and they're shaking. You're trembling, and you can feel that. Yeah. I didn't feel anything from this guy. He didn't seem. He seemed like aloof, is the best word to describe it. He didn't. He, he didn't come across as somebody who knew why we were there uh, at all. Uh, after they asked him, uh, "Why do you think you've been arrested?" and his response was, uh, "I, I ran a stop sign. I think that's why I was arrested." <laughs> And my partner from FBI goes, do you think the FBI arrests people for running stop
1: signs? That morning, across Fonda's clinic locations, patients are turning up for treatments. But instead of business as usual, they find locked doors and signs. It's all part of a careful plan. The U.S. Attorney's Office had reached out to other cancer centers across Metro Detroit.
3: And asked them, um, if you guys had an influx of cancer patients, would you be able to take them at a moment's notice without... An an appointment, just have them come in as soon as possible. Would you guys be able to handle this? And they said yes.
1: And for many of FATA's patients, it was a day where they learn or start to discover they don't have the disease Fada diagnosed them with. So a life-changing day, I bet, for, for some people or a lot of people, or at least in the coming days and weeks as they found out results of new tests, maybe.
5: Absolutely life-changing. Many of them had suffered permanent injuries like loss of teeth and organ damage and nerve damage that comes from being administered so much chemotherapy, you know, which is, which is essentially poison. A doctor makes a calculated decision that I'm going to give you this small dose of poison to kill the cancer cells. It'll kill your hair along the way and some other things. But in the end, you're going to be healthier because you're, we're going to get the cancer killed out of your system. We're going to stop the chemotherapy and we hope you'll you go on to have a healthy life. When you don't have cancer, it's just poison, and so it does cause some of these long-term problems and illnesses that people will never recover from.
1: Robert Sobere, who we learned about on last week's episode, was one of those patients. He'd been diagnosed by Dr. Fada and had been getting treatments for two and a half years. He remembers when he heard the news.
6: The day he got arrested, it just had to be new news come on. And I just, we're sitting there at the desk doing different uh, stuff, and my wife says, are you guys watching news? And I goes, no, doing that TBN." She goes, wow, here, you're to come see this. Well, that's when they showed he got arrested that morning. The uh, FBI went in and grabbed all his uh, offices and stuff and arrested him for fraud. That's all we heard. I said, wow, okay. Well, about two hours later, I get a phone call from the FBI. And they told me what was going on, Then that he got arrested for fraud. And they got my records, and they want to talk to me some more. They want to come out here and talk to me in person, Department of Justice and the FBI. So I said, OK, so we, we talked, and they come out and we talk again. But uh, I, I just, it's hard to explain.
1: Robert still has a hard time talking about it his life, his job, his finances, his wife and her job, years of painful treatment and hundreds of hours of treatments. His life had been upended. He went to see a new oncologist.
6: He looked at two biopsies I had done and he came back and says, there's nothing wrong with you. You don't have anything wrong with you. And you definitely don't have cancer. And my wife and I just about fell to the ground. It was like, you know, a big relief off of you, but it's also a big shock. like, Because you hit, you like, well, I just did all these injections. What, what's going to happen to me now? My wife, first time my wife asked, goes, what about all these injections? What's going to happen? Is that causing all your teeth falling? And that's when this doctor or other doctor told me, yeah, he goes, that's what's happening.
1: Robert's doctor confirmed that the cancer treatments were wreaking havoc on his body.
6: He goes, that's why you start feeling like you are. He goes, whatever he gave you is doing you in.
1: For someone without the disease, the years of treatments had taken their toll and Robert's recovery was just beginning. Going off the meds was just as bad, or worse.
6: I thought I was going to die. I was looking forward to it. Just, you know, take me out. Please. I hurt. I, I was sick. I couldn't keep nothing down. My wife, and just, but she hung in there and stayed with me, and it started to clear up then. I mean, well, I didn't have that much pain. But I wasn't that sick. The sickness was starting to go away. And then the infectious, doctor, infectious disease doctor said, she goes, well, yeah, it must be working out of you, because whatever is in your system is going out now, so you're starting to feel a little better. I as well ever be better than I was? He goes, no, you'll never be like you were.
1: The horrific truth was finally coming out. Sarah Cohen with the U.S. Attorney's Office.
4: Even if one of his patients had, for example, stage four lung cancer and the prognosis from an ordinary oncologist would have been, say your goodbyes, let's admit you to hospice, let's make you as comfortable as possible um, until the end of your life. Fada wouldn't do that. He would give false hopes to the patients and to their families and promise them a cure um, while administering um very high levels of chemotherapy, which obviously carry um, really significant side effects.
1: Barbara McQuaid with the U.S. Attorney's Office.
5: One of the things that Dr. Fada did, and it is a a technique that you see many people engaged in fraud schemes do, and that is he would not allow anyone else to see his patients. And you'll see this with people who cook books and other things, only they can look at it, they never take a vacation, all of these kinds of things because they don't want anyone else to scrutinize their work because they might discover their fraud. And what's interesting about Dr. Fada is he was so greedy that he didn't just over-prescribed, in some instances he under-prescribed. There were some patients who would need, say, a vial and a quarter of chemotherapy who truly had cancer. But instead, he would tell his nurses not to bother opening that second vial because it's such a waste. Once you open it, you can't use it on someone else. Let's hold back on that one and just give them the one vial, and we'll we'll say we gave them one and a quarter.
1: Many of the patients who went to see Fada probably had very little wrong with them.
5: You know, he would say, "I'm sorry to tell you that you have cancer, and uh, we need to begin chemotherapy treatments right away." You know, for people who might have benefited simply from an iron supplement.
0: Are you 55 plus? This is your moment to make a positive impact on your community and get back so much more in return. Visit americourt.gov yourmoment today.
1: What Fada had done for so long, the impact it had on patients' lives, was unthinkable.
3: I have a laundry list of different things that he would say to people, which is mind-blowing, one of which was a lady who went to him. Uh, he diagnosed her with cancer. Uh, And then uh, she's like, I'd like to get a second opinion. Um, And he's like, why? You don't need to get a second opinion. I have have experience here. My mom was diagnosed with this cancer, and she died from this cancer. I would never, you know, purposely, you know, harm you with the treatment for this cancer. This is something that's near and dear to me. Mm -hmm. Um, And I asked that lady, I go, did he actually say that to you? And she said yes. Um, And I'm like, oh you know, no matter the stage of their cancer, whether it was stage one to four, it didn't matter, you know, that I have a 70% chance of putting your cancer in remission. Hmm. He was saying this to stage four pancreatic cancer patients.
1: Jeez. So giving hope to people who clearly probably didn't deserve that level of hope.
3: That's correct. So he was treating these people with chemotherapy and these other drugs, you know, hours until they died. So he's doing it, he's... You know, using these the human body as a commodity to to just keep billing and billing and billing and billing and billing until it's no longer useful for him.
1: Fada had violated the sacred trust between doctor and patient. For Doctor So Mongle, who had come forward with evidence of Fada's crimes, the truth was unbelievable.
7: The cancer doctor and the cancer patient, the bond we have, it's like you know, almost like a, a second family, right? Because the cancer patient will see you more than they see their cousins. This is. This is very, very intimate. And they would do anything. They would just look at you in the eye and they'd say, Doc, what do you recommend?
1: The truth was hard to swallow. Fada's patients numbered in the thousands, and it was clear that at least hundreds had been given unnecessary treatments or had been misdiagnosed. Barbara McQuaid with the U.S. Attorney's Office.
5: We were able to document 515 patients who were abused in some way, some who were falsely diagnosed with having cancer who didn't others who received excessive treatments, it's likely there were more, but these were the ones that we were able to document through their patient file.
1: And as investigators were soon to learn, the amount of money involved in the case was truly staggering.
5: His false billings amounted to $34 million, and we calculated his profits at $17 million.
1: Angela Swantek was one of the first to make an official complaint against FADA back in 2009 after a job interview when she noticed a clear disregard for basic procedures in his clinic.
8: Those patients never had a chance. They were poisoned. They died unnecessarily. They probably would have lived, you know, longer and a better quality of life.
1: George Karace says, to his knowledge, many of the nurses and staff at the center were able to move on with their lives and get new jobs. Nursing was in hot demand. Unlike Fada, they did not face criminal charges. As news of Fada's crime spread, court hearings came and went, and a trial date approached, Fada did plead guilty in September 2014, just over a year after his arrest.
5: He pleaded guilty to 13 counts of health care fraud and one count of conspiracy to receive kickbacks and two counts of money laundering.
1: In July 2015, a sentencing hearing is scheduled. Angela Swantek was at the hearing, and as victim after victim read their statements, she watched as Fada revealed yet another layer of his character.
8: It truly was like sitting through on, I can't even remember, it was like sitting through, you know, 20 eulogies. And he looked so put off that, I don't know why I'm sitting here, you know, he looked completely disengaged. And it was it was very offensive. And so then he, you know, stood up and, you know, did his little song and dance, and it was it was, like, you just wanted him to sit down and shut up.
6: You know, when I gave my my uh, read up on front, and I goes, we didn't ask for this, and, you know, we, none of this was
7: <laughs>
6: planned by me to, you know, but the fact is, you put me through this, you know. What if it was your family that you did, uh, ha- did uh, this was done to? Your son, your daughter, your wife, and he wouldn't even look at me, would not even look at me when I did my victim pass statement. He just turned away. He did not show any remorse. He did not care one thing about, pe- about the people. You know, he was concerned more about him going to jail. That's all he was concerned about. Or how many years he got. You know, It was a big, big farce, the whole thing.
1: When we started researching the story of Fareed Fada and wondered why this all happened, why he did what he did, we already knew that greed would be part of the answer. So when Farid Fada finally got his chance to speak on the stand, we learned what else drove him to wreak havoc on the lives of his patients and break that sacred bond between doctor and patient. Barbara McQuaid.
5: And the judge asked him why he had done it, and he said, out of greed, which I understood, but then he also said something interesting. He said, and out of power. He seemed to enjoy having the position of power over his patients and sort of controlling their destiny. That was something I've never heard before. Greed, you hear a lot from defendants. I I had never heard that someone had enjoyed harming people through this position of power.
4: The district judge sentenced Fada to 45 years in a federal prison.
5: I will say that um, 45
4: years in prison for um, an individual who's never been in prison before and an individual of Fada's age is an extremely lengthy sentence.
1: Despite the fact that Fada's life would almost certainly be spent behind bars, doesn't sit well with many of Fada's patients. Among them, Robert Soberet.
6: As far as, far as what he got, no, he should have he got life. Automatic should have been life. Forty-five years. he's still got a very slight chance of walking out of there. I'm waiting for that day. I hope I'm, I hope to God I'm still alive that day. And they say he's going to be released today. Because I'll tell you what, <laughs> there's going to be a lot
8: of people waiting for him to walk out.
1: It wasn't enough for Angela Swantek who'd made allegations about Fada years earlier and was later interviewed by the FBI after his arrest.
8: The thing that never sits well with me is I reported him because he was harming patients. He was harming them. He was killing them. He was poisoning them. And what ultimately got him arrested was all about the money. Imagine if that was your mom or your dad that died In that three year span of when I reported him to his arrest, I actually proposed this to the feds. And I said, listen, I said, he gave if somebody is only supposed to get six months of chemotherapy and he gave them two years of chemotherapy and they died because of, you know, side effects. How is that not murder?
1: And what kind of response did you get?
8: It's just hard to prove. They said it was hard to prove that that's what his intent was.
1: He's in jail now, so I hope that's some, and he'll be there for a long time.
5: Yes, he's going to be, he'll die there. Well, from time to time, patients would ask, are are you charging him with murder or attempted murder? And you know, in the federal system, you can really only charge people with violations of acts of Congress, federal crimes. And so using the the tools we had available to us, uh, the obvious charge was health care fraud that makes it a federal offense. And in some ways, it was a life sentence. He's a 50-year-old man at the time of his sentencing, and he was sentenced to 45 years in prison. And I think You know, being released at 95 or thereabouts, um, I think, is is certainly uh, justice was served.
1: The U.S. Attorney's Office is still working on restitution for the patients. A special facilitator was hired to work with victims. But the money they did seize will never be enough to go around to everyone and to make up for the pain and shattered lives and lost time. Fada's plea deal included over 500 victims, but the total number of victims will never be known.
4: Unquestionably, there were um, many, many more victims of his crimes than 553. Fada, at the time of his arrest, um, had over 16,000 historical patients, and over 1,000 uh, patients currently in his practice.
1: So what could any of FADA's patients have done, if anything, to protect themselves? Many of the patients got to know Angela Swantek after FADA's arrest and went to her for help.
8: Get your pathology reports, because whenever I had to review a chart, um, that's the first thing I would look for, is where's the pathology report, where's the bone marrow biopsy. Most, all of them said no evidence of cancer, but FADA told them that they did.
6: Nowadays, I, I encourage anyone and every one of myself, go get a second opinion automatically. I don't care what doctor it is. Always question stuff. Question everything they do for you. If they tell you, take the pill, question why, and find out, and everything you can read on it, get on the Internet and look it up, because it'll help you out 100%.
1: For many of Fada's patients, the physical pain and suffering lasted years after his arrest. Dr. So Mongle is now practicing in California. He says the impact of Fada's crimes is still being felt.
7: This was a very big hit on medical oncology. And with all the advances, patients are, uh, you know, more than 50% of cancers are cured. Patients are living longer. Quality of life is so much better. But he did harm to the medical community in the worst way possible by... Uh, just taking away the trust, that there are so many patients that we could help, but this case, Father Case was shown as an example to go to, okay, you know, I'm going to go to Mexico to get um, the vitamin C infusions because I don't trust the natural, I'm going to go the natural route because I don't trust the modern medicine. That was the biggest harm that he did beyond the physical harm that he did to possibly maybe about a thousand patients. It did harm um, way more than that.
1: Robert sobere is angry too. You can hear it in his voice.
6: It starts bringing back memory as well, and I. I like getting headaches and upset stomach and everything else every time I think about it. And, um, I apologize. I, you know, go ahead. I'm sorry.
1: Robert's doing better today, though. He's taking 16 medications instead of the 23 he took a few years ago.
6: You and say goes you look a lot better than you did five years ago when you walked in my office. You know, he says, it's he says unbelievable. He says, I didn't think you were going to make it there when you first walked in. I was sick. I was really bad off.
1: You'll remember the reason why Robert went to see Fareed Fata all those years ago was because of an x-ray that showed what looked like an area of missing bone, possible cancer. Robert eventually found out what that missing bone really was.
6: Well, yeah, I come to find out there was a, um, a blur on the x-ray. No, just a little... Blur on the x ray is all it was. Uh, that part was blackened out, but it looked like something was missing. And they swore them down. I, said, I got a copy of this. They said, it just, it looks like it's not there. But all it was just a blur in the x ray. All of a sudden, they should have had a second one done, but nobody thought about that or anything else.
1: George Karace, the office manager, turned whistleblower who took the case to the FBI still left wondering how and why a successful physician could have brought so much pain and suffering to the people he was treating.
9: Why would he throw this all away? Why would he throw his family? Why would he throw the clinic, the, the employees, the, the, the patients? What would motivate this man to do this kind of thing? Those are the kind of questions I tried to ask myself. I didn't have the answer.
1: George still doesn't have an answer. If anything, he's learned that doing the right thing can have life-altering consequences
9: being a whistleblower to me means that you are contributing to um, society in a mean, real and meaningful way i mean it it, it isn't something that the society necessarily agrees with because people want you to come forward and they want you to when you see something to say something but when you do the consequences are very harsh in other words you could when you come forward, even if you are correct, you could be blacklisted. You you will definitely be fired. I don't know anybody who's a whistleblower and wasn't fired from the job. I was included in that. Effectively, I gave up my position and my career. It's only because of shows like this that give me a platform to tell my side of the story, albeit that it was years later. It does give me, um, from the perspective of of, of being able to not only tell the story as it should have been told, but also to help prevent, by telling this story, prevent uh, or reduce the risk of the next Dr. Pada from ever impacting anyone else.
1: I'm back with Peggy Spasado. She is retired now, but for many years was with the Department of Justice and the Medicare Fraud Strike Force team. Peggy, I want to point out a note here, a final note on on the story of Dr. Fareed Fada, that his his trial went all the way to the Supreme Court. It did get denied. So I, I know there are a lot of victims of this story who are not completely satisfied with what he got, but he's not going anywhere anytime soon. And over your long career, you've certainly put a few people behind bars, or rather helped too, I would imagine.
2: Uh-huh. Yes, I helped. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm the little short person that sort of sat in the back and shuffled papers, but I helped. <laughs> right,
1: right, right. Running the numbers and, and paying close attention. Well, and as we pointed out earlier, I mean, you, you actually, your work's helped save uh, billions of dollars for taxpayers. But the, again, want to point out that the, this this story of Fried is one example of a big, horrible, huge problem. Um, it is not isolated by any means.
2: The cases that I've worked on have been surgeons, have been durable medical equipment companies, have been private physicians. I mean, it's all types. Uh, and the majority of them are all very, very high dollar and very egregious fraud.
1: Let me ask you one more time as we look at Dr. Fried faden and what he was doing with patients where he was prescribing uh, treatments and medication that they simply did not need. How would he then make money from Medicare?
2: What he was doing, as I have been able to figure out, was he was doing a number of things. He was giving the medication that the patients didn't need. He was running the diagnostics that were supposed to support what that was, whether he I don't know what the results on those were. He was doing the um, PET scans. On all of these things, he was making money. Okay. How would a patient know? A patient wouldn't know. The patient, you know, the labs wouldn't know what the, the circumstances were. So he was free and clear. As far as nobody knew what he was doing, nobody apparently got a second opinion or you know, understood the depth. So he kept his cards fairly close, and he owned let's say, a total of seven companies, and they all supported him. I mean, all the, all the money that he was pushing through those companies came back to him. Yeah. So that's how he made money.
1: In your experience with Medicare fraud, are, have you run into situations, or is it common that there are simply people who are part of an organization that are looking the other way? They may not be the actual people who are doing the, the bilking of the government or Medicare, but... but, right. they, but
2: there, there are people, because if they had to fight to get the job, they're afraid they're going to lose their job, they're afraid they're going to get caught up in something, you know, they're afraid that maybe it'll come back and get them too. So there's a, there's a certain amount of, of fear you know, they know that it's wrong, but I don't know what to do about it. I don't know who to talk to. I don't know where to go. I mean, so there's, there's that kind of fear. And it, it's based on the people that are there, whether they were, so to speak, brainwashed that you can't talk about this or you you don't know the whole story. And that's another trick they play is... Nobody knows the whole story.
1: And then what is the overall concern with Medicare running out at some point? Is it, where do we stand?
2: As long as the Medicare trust fund is supported by payroll taxes, general revenue taxes, and premiums, as long as we've got people enough paying into that fund, we're okay. The, the scary part is with the baby boomers taking more out and, and they're having fewer children, so we don't have as many people supporting the Medicare trust fund.
1: I want to point out and make clear that there are uh, a whole world of honest, trustworthy, professional, wonderful physicians and healthcare workers who are not doing this.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I've talked to several of them this past few weeks. Yeah. And, and they're understanding. They're, uh, they're wonderful people. Wonderful people. And I, I sincerely hope. Because I, I had that as my career. And, and so I don't, I don't talk down about, you know, nurses and doctors, because I w- I've been in the system since I was 20 years old. Yeah. And they are, they're basically nice people. They want to help other people. So no, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't go at this with a chip on my shoulder with an attitude, with a cynical attitude about it. But there there are wonderful people out there.
1: Peggy Sposato, you are a true hero, and we are honored to have you on as our Medicare fraud expert. Thanks again Thank for you. sharing all your, all your thoughts and expertise. and Thank thoughts you. It's been a pleasure. For more information and resources on how to protect yourself or a loved one from becoming a victim of a scam, you can visit aarp.org slash fraudwatchnetwork. Many thanks to our producers, Julie Getz and Brooke Ellis, and of course, audio engineer Julio Gonzalez. Be sure to find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. For The Perfect Scam, I'm Will Johnson.